welcome to another episode of Us Anxious Folk. Today is a very exciting episode because I actually have two guests at the same time. I have got sisters Eliza and Em here um, and they're from Melbourne too, which is exciting because, yeah, it's like we're almost neighbours, right? Pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having us, Lauren. Yeah, it's so stoked much. to be here. All good. Um, so I... Yeah, I was just going to say, tell me your anxiety story, but there's two of you, so <laughs> I don't know who wants to start, but yes, tell me, tell me the story. I'm happy to jump in first. Um, I think it's like I was saying to Lies earlier. You know, we we connected in, and we were kind of like, you know, what parts should you say, and what parts should I say? Because um, I guess the the moral of the story is that we both have experienced super eerily similar fears and anxieties for as long as we possibly can remember mm-hmm. and around the same ages as well, which is super interesting. We actually look back on it and we're kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite interesting to think about. So from the earliest that I can remember, I have, and my sister as well, have had anxiety and it has manifested in lots of different ways. So um, initially when I was younger, my very first fear that I sort of developed was a fear of vomiting. Mm-hmm. So I had a massive, massive fear of vomiting and Lies did as well. Yeah, um, it was also my first fear. So my first fear. <laughs> Um, and it was to the point where like, I would only eat certain foods and I would only eat foods that were cooked by my mom or my nan, because I knew that they were safe. And Mm -hmm. I was really, you know, I had a lot of OCD around cleanliness. And when we went out to restaurants, if I hadn't have been to that restaurant before I would eat and I'd have a heap of anxiety after it because I wouldn't know if it was going to make me sick or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then obviously we all know what anxiety is like. As soon as you start feeling anxious, you start feeling sick, right? Mm -hmm. So the more you feel sick, the more you start stressing out that you're going to throw up and it's just like this vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. So, um, Lies, did you want to add anything there? Because I know that you experienced the exact same. Well, yeah. Funny thing is Em's basically said everything that applies to me. So <laughs> it's yeah. the exact, it was the exact same thing for me, but the only real difference was that I felt as though mine stemmed from a specific event mm-hmm. in the sense that when I was about five years old, Em had an ice skating competition and mm-hmm. I went to, you know, be a good sister, cheer her on in the bleachers, but, you know, I got a little bit bored, not going to lie, Em, you're very good, but, you yeah. know, <laughs> so Thanks, I had to, <laughs> had to go and find some food. And I went and got some hot chips, you know, ate them as fast as I could because I was five years old and then came home, wasn't feeling that great. And then that night I just got food poisoning and I got very sick. And so I think because I was so young and I got so sick from it, it was like, it wasn't too long, didn't last that long, but it was just a very overwhelming event Mm -hmm. that I feel from there I developed the anxiety around eating and potentially getting sick from anything that I was eating and so I had the exact same thing as M. I didn't want to eat anything from restaurants because I didn't know who prepared it I didn't know if it had been cooked correctly and so I only wanted mum or nan to make my food and it was the exact same thing 
But that's the only real difference is that I feel as though mine came from a specific point in time. I'm not sure about M if you had the same thing, but I did. I did actually. When I was younger, um, we had a family trip to Kayama. Oh my god! Of course. Yeah, you remember, right? (laughs) Trips too. Like a reunion. Chips again. (laughs) I know. Um, And I think, yeah, I just I ate something, or I actually I think it was potentially just gastro, and I was so sick, Mm -hmm. and like it was we're just in you know as you would be aware Lauren with with anxiety you're just hypersensitive to everything so it was that traumatic for me um that I couldn't wear the clothes anymore that I had worn on that night because it reminded me of that night and I had that association and I had a I'll never forget I had a chocolate paddle pop that night and I have never been able to touch a chocolate paddle pop since because of that reason right (laughs) so um I'll never forget that and I think that's where it triggered for me because what um and to the to all the listeners out there but um as we get more deep and deep into me and Lizzie's story what it all stems from is a fear of not having control right so we're both major 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 perfectionists and when we don't have control over something or when something's out of our control we develop a lot of anxiety around it um but it's also very interesting because we're also very laid back in lots of different situations um so there's a lot of times where I won't have control over something and I'll just be like yeah whatever just let it happen it's all good um but then there's other things that just utterly terrify me because I can't can't control them and it's usually revolved around situations that I can't get out of Mm -hmm. so we'll get a little bit more into that later on but yeah so it started with a fear of vomiting for us um and around the same age and then for me it sort of shifted and actually started manifesting into sleep anxiety Mm -hmm. so I went through a period where and I still go through these periods today where I get major anxiety over not getting enough sleep. And because I'm anxious, I can't get to sleep. So (laughs) it's just a vicious cycle. So I'll never forget, um, I think it was like year five school camp and it was the first night and everyone was asleep in their beds sound by nine o'clock and I was just lying there staring at the ceiling until 2 a.m. being Mm -hmm. like, what is wrong with me? Everyone else around me is sound asleep, no cares in the world, and I'm lying here contemplating life at 11 years old, not sure what's going on. Like, yeah. I'm sure I had the exact yeah. same thing at my year three camp. Yeah. <laughs> and it's even worse when you're surrounded by people who just fall asleep so easily. Like, for example, my partner, he literally puts his head on the pillow and he's out in five minutes Um, and there's nights where that does happen to me and then there's nights where I'm lying there until 2 33 o'clock just like waiting for it to happen so that's another thing that um yeah manifested for me it was it turned in from a fear of vomiting into sleep Mm -hmm. um and I know lies has experienced as well some yeah I have but probably not to the same extent as M has so Mm -hmm. I would usually get 
fear around bedtime and when like it was night but Mm -hmm. my fear wasn't actually about falling asleep I just think that was the time of day when every everything was slowing down around me so I was like kind of alone with my thoughts and everything was kind of just perpetuating at that time so I'd be able to think about all the things that had been worrying me throughout the day that I'd kind of pushed to the back of my mind and they'd all come to the foreground And so that was where a weird relationship with sleeping started because I would be kind of up until two, three o'clock just thinking things over in my head and like severely overthinking things. Like there's no need for that amount of thought to be going on. Um, (laughs) But I think think, um, it didn't really matter to me how much sleep I got in the end, just as long as I got there. Like as long as I managed to fall asleep at some point, that was what mattered to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I haven't had it too much recently, but I think in primary school I would probably spend, you know, four out of five nights, like just lying mm-hmm. awake until three o'clock in the morning and then eventually falling asleep because I just got so physically exhausted that my body couldn't sustain me being awake any longer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's pretty much it. Okay. It's funny, like, talking about sleep, um, people message me and ask, do I deal with, like, panic attacks in the night and, you know, sort of, like, fear around that. And I've always Mm -hmm. said, no, not really. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not too bad with sleep. But when you were talking, Em, about uh, being awake Mm -hmm. and everyone else being Mm -hmm. asleep, like, I feel like that's been me so many times throughout my life, even – as you know a 10 year old 11 year old 12 year old Mm. um and so I don't I don't freak out about not being able to get to sleep but I have always had that sense that I'm different in a way (laughs) everyone else is falling to sleep peacefully and I'm there questioning my life (laughs) for sure yeah so that that had never occurred to me until you said that so (laughs) that was interesting for me yeah and I've always I've always thought that I think um you know it does it does make you feel different it does Mm. make you feel different when the masses and for me it got to the point where I was really irritated by people being like oh you know I'm so tired I I, I'm just gonna go to bed and you know it's, it's getting late I need to go to bed and I'm like no 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 stay up with me because I want you know I yeah. need company like <laughs> I know that you're gonna go to bed and you're gonna be able to fall asleep straight away and then I'm just like you know and that, I guess it was selfish of me but those things would trigger me because I'm just yeah. like I'd get so frustrated mm-hmm. I'd be like you can just go to sleep so easily and um I've I'm a lot a lot better now like I've actually been able to train myself to kind of manipulate my own thoughts and and stop the overthinking and that sort of thing but um it definitely you know it definitely there's nights still where I'm like all right this is going to be a crappy night I'm just going to lie here and accept it and then I eventually fall asleep as a result of that so um yeah that's that's the next segment um <laughs> of many, of many more to come. so sad to say I'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a whole it's a whole life event a whole ordeal um <laughs> before we jump into the next section I thought that I would just quickly cover off the fact that um by this time in our lives so this is when me and my sister were both in primary school we we knew about anxiety but we both hadn't actually been properly clinically diagnosed yet and Mm -hmm. 
in talking about it with our family and as we have progressed over the years, what we've found is that there is a huge, huge, huge genetic predisposition from both sides of our family. So Mm -hmm. um, it's basically just like, a ticking time bomb for both of us to be completely honest when um I would say probably about 60 to 70 percent of both sides of our family have some form of mental illness in Mm -hmm. some way and majority of them uh are actually undiagnosed Mm -hmm. um But, you know, we, both me and my sister, going through what we've been through, we've done a lot of research and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we sort of look at, um, you know, people in our family and they're of older generations, right? So mental illness, the talk around it wasn't as, um, I guess, common and it it wasn't as active as it is today, right? So. But it's it's there. It's so noticeable and it's it's very there. So the next thing for me and for my sister as well, (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, mind you guys, there's like a, there's a three year gap between us. So I'm 23 and my sister's 20. Um, But we both experienced um, eating disorder. And for me, it wasn't as bad as what Lies went through. Um, but around year nine, so around when I was 15 years old, um, I would just, I was working out probably 40 to 50 minutes of hardcore cardio seven days a week. And I would have been eating probably a max of six, 700 calories a day, which is not sustainable by any means. And for me, my body type is a lot different to my sister. So I did have you know, a bit of weight that I could lose. So Mm -hmm. it didn't get to the point for me where I was unhealthy. Um, But for example, you know, TMI, but like my period stopped, right? Which we all know. Classic number one indication. Isn't a good sign. Yeah. Um, Whereas Lies was already tiny. So she had absolutely nothing to lose. Um, So yeah, over to you, kiddo. (laughs) Well, (laughs) where to start? But basically um, this disorder for me didn't start to develop, I would say, until around year nine. So I'm going to say 15, 16 years old, which I think was the same for M as well. Yeah. Um, But mine kind of stemmed from what I remember to be health class in high school. Because I remember we were talking about, you know, the food pyramid, what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating, kind of um, putting like an evil image on certain foods. Mm -hmm. And then I remember we also had like a task where we had to like go home, record what we'd eaten, report back to the class the next day. And, you know, it's all in, you know, it it wasn't maliciously intended to have bad effects. Yeah. But... I just remember being so fixated on it and being like, well, I just have to like watch what I eat now so that when I report back to the class, I'm like, it's fine and they'll approve of what I'm having. Mm-hmm. And really it was feeding into society's perspective of what we should and shouldn't be eating and feeding into our bodies. Mm-hmm. And there was no focus on, you know, enjoyment and the pleasure that you mm-hmm. can get about get from eating food. Yeah. It was all about health, what you should and shouldn't do. And I remember that just being the kind of thing that set off the mindset of me always being conscious of what I was putting into my body. 
And from there, I think it just kind of spiralled in the culture Mm. that we live in where everyone is extremely fixated on body image. Um, Social media is so pertinent in everyone's lives. Diet culture, you know, all of that is so persistent everywhere you go pretty much. And so I think all of that kind of just added on top of each other and the weight of it just kind of eventually broke me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I started to pick up habits very similar to M. I was always wanting to be in control of what I was consuming, how much I was consuming. And, you know, the number one thing I never did was not eat anything. Like I, I never did that. I never denied myself food completely. But I was extremely controlling over what I did consume and then how much energy expenditure I was outputting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously it was just out of balance. And so I was expending way too much energy for the amount of food that I was consuming. And that was why a lot of people didn't suspect that I had an eating disorder because at school I was still eating. I was still acting fairly normal around food, Um, you know, just denying a few things, but it wasn't an excessive amount. So no one really expected it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was going to an endocrinologist because like M, I hadn't been getting my periods. And at this point I was 16 and I still hadn't got my first period. So we were investigating that a little bit. And it was actually my endocrinologist who called my mum and said one day, look, I suspect that your daughter might have an eating disorder. Like this might be out of line, but you might need to look into it further. Here's some resources. Do with this information what you will. And mum was like, okay, cool. And that day I was at school. I remember so clearly I got into the car. And mum goes, lies, we're, (laughs) yeah, you won't forget this either, Em. (laughs) Um, Lies, we're going down to the hospital. And my first thought was like, oh, my gosh, like, is Nan okay? Like, something's happened to someone. She goes, no, it's you. Like, um, we've just got to admit you because we think you have an eating disorder. And that thought had not even crossed my mind until my mum told me. And I was like, oh, my God, I have an eating disorder? Like, I just had no clue. And so (laughs) we went down to the hospital. I got admitted into the emergency room. And I had no clue, like, what was about to happen to me. I thought I was probably going to be there maybe, you know, one night, get checked up on, have my vitals looked at, go on some kind of plan when I get home, go on some kind of therapy, have some time off school, regroup, and go back to my normal life. But that was not the case at all. I actually got moved to the Royal Children's because they didn't have the kind of heart monitoring um, machinery that they needed at the hospital that I originally got admitted to. So they needed some more technical stuff to monitor me because I got to a point where I was pretty critically ill. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Royal Children's. I was there for about a week on um, the eating disorder ward which was just a total shift in my reality because going from living at home where you're completely free to do what you want, being in an eating disorder ward, you have someone monitoring you like pretty much 24-7. You aren't able to walk technically depending on the level of severity that you are at. Um, Every meal you have to finish within 15 minutes. Um, If you don't, you have to consume some kind of like supplement. Um... You are very limited in your contact that you can have to the outside world. So for an anxious person, this was 
extremely jarring to me, mm. but it was in all honesty, exactly what I needed because it really shook me out of my reality and my habits and my OCD that I had at home and put me in a place of, not that it's good, but a place of fear for my own life mm-hmm. to the extent that I would do anything to get better, get out of hospital and go home. And so I was there for a week and then I had to get um, transferred back to the Eastern Hospital so that because um, that was the hospital in my district. I was there for another week and because I was so adamant on just getting better and getting out of there, I actually was only admitted for a total of two weeks. And I, after that, I was able to come home. So it's not that common that you only stay in for two weeks. A lot of people have to stay in for a little bit longer because it can be a lot more difficult to make the full recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was lucky that I just had the determination to do what I needed to get out of there. And after that, like recovery didn't stop. You have to, you have to keep working on it. And even to this day, as a 20 year old, and that was me when I was, you know, 15, 16, it's, it's still there, but you know, things come and go in your life and I have to work on it every day. But now I have the skill set that I need to be able to deal with the thoughts that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, <laughs> you know, even though it was extremely terrifying, I probably wouldn't change it because it has made me mm-hmm. very resilient and it's made me the person that I am today. So, mm. yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's definitely helped me tackle a lot of my other external anxieties as well and habits. Okay. And, That's interesting. Yeah, and, you know, the number one thing that I found quite um, shocking is that when you are in hospital, they are purely dealing with you on clinical terms. So they're dealing with your physical being, how mm. they can treat you with food and that kind of thing. So they're actually not dealing with your psychology of it at all. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing that you kind of feel a bit neglected with in hospital. Um, and when you do come out, obviously they put you on an outpatients program. So they want you to go to specific associated psychologists and that kind of thing. But the psychologist that I got stationed with, unfortunately for me, just wasn't a good fit. And I don't feel as though they did enough to follow up with ensuring that I was um, being treated well outside of hospital. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of a gap there. And that, I feel, is the number one downfall of the system that we have in Australia because so many teenagers have to get readmitted as soon as they come back out because they fall back into their habits which is associated with the comfort of their home and not being watched by carers so it's actually really empowered me to make some kind of change in the industry somehow Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure how I'm gonna do it but you know if doing little things like talking about it on a podcast like this can you know help one person at least then I'd be happy you know Mm. so I'm happy I've had the experience in a weird way (laughs) no I I can understand that and I I dare say that um that gap in the system exists in a lot of other countries as well um I just don't think there's the funding and you know people in the public system are dealing with such a broad spectrum of Mm. um 
psychological issues a lot of the time. And there's been times where I've felt like myself and people that I know have fallen through the gaps because they're not, they're not overly sick. You know, they're not on the extreme end of the sick spectrum. They're just sort of somewhere in the middle. And so there are other people who get more. um, Priority. Yeah, the other people end up getting more outpatient care Mm. um, because obviously they need it, but it does Mm -hmm. kind of make you feel like if you're sort of somewhat coping but not quite coping, you kind of get lost. Exactly right, and even the system has capacities. So sometimes people do get admitted into the ER just as I did and they get physically assessed and determined to be stable. Mm-hmm. even though mentally they are probably at the same place as another person who is not considered physically stable. Yeah. So they actually get turned away from the units mm. when they probably really, really they need to the help. Just exactly. They need to For be sure. in there just as much. Yeah. That's another area where there's a bit of a gap. So there's an area going into the system that needs improvement. There's probably a few things within the system that needs a little bit of looking at as well. Um, but especially coming out of the system, that post-patient care is the number one thing that needs attention in my perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, a, a hard fight, I think, but yeah. a worthy one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's, it's so much more common than people are aware of. Like within my school, because I went to an all-girls school, um, there is like a very large focus on image, self-image, and then your perspectives of other people as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's extremely easy to get caught up within yourself and how you perceive yourself that you forget other people are going through the exact same thing. And I know there's a lot of my friends who I have found out have had similar issues to me that I just never would have suspected. Mm. And I think there needs to be a lot more awareness and education about eating disorders at schools yeah. Um, yeah. because I just don't feel like it's sufficient um, and there's so many little things that can easily go undetected that mm-hmm. if we just simply had the education on them they would be picked up right away and it can you know as bad as it is to admit eating disorders take lives and if <clears throat> if they are detected earlier it can potentially save them I wanted to say that I loved that you spoke about pleasure earlier on mm-hmm. um, in terms of food because I know, I mean, my schooling was a little bit earlier than yours, but back then they certainly weren't teaching about pleasure. It was all yeah. about the food pyramid. And exactly. um, there's, there's, I mean, I hope my daughter's not old enough yet to be in high school, but I hope that by the time she gets there, there is that discussion that, yes, food, food is my God, I can't even speak, food is fuel, but yeah, there needs yeah. to be that element of of letting yourself enjoy something and letting yourself exactly. immerse immerse yourself in something mm-hmm. pleasurable. Yeah, exactly, because, you know, it's one of our five main senses, taste, mm-hmm. and you can't deny it simply to fuel your body. I feel like the perspective of the food pyramid, as important as it is, I feel like it is a fairly outdated concept for sure (laughs) you know like there are certain foods you know that are more nutritious for your body but if you get creative with the way that you can make things and enjoy things then I think you can incorporate all foods into your diet and live a very rich and fulfilling life and be happy with what you're eating and happy with your body and happy with everything that comes after that Mm -hmm. you know so 
I think it's just all about a perspective shift and creating awareness and more resources for people around this issue. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is that awareness? Oh, sorry, Lauren, you go. No, no, no go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, is that awareness? Because I think for me, um, like when Lies was going through this, I, I sort of, I'll never forget, I sort of pulled mum aside a couple of times and, and to mum's credit, she was, and always has been um, like our guardian angel through every single fear, anxiety experience that we have ever gone through. I know mum herself experiences anxiety, but probably not to the extent that Liz and I do. So to her credit, she's done a great job at helping us navigate our way through that without actually having experienced those feelings herself before. but I did, you know, there were times where I pulled mum aside and I said to her, I'm like, mum, you know, for example, one of the the tell signs for me was um, when mum would come and pick us up from school, I would just come out. There was a side gate that we used to walk out to get to the car down the side street and I just walked straight out, whereas mum and I would have to wait for lies because she would take the long way around because she wanted to get that exercise in, Right. And I would just sort of sit there and I'd go, okay, hang on, this is something that I would have done, you know, two years ago when I was going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, if I went out to dinners with friends, I would say that I'm not hungry because I already ate at home. There was food at home when in reality I hadn't actually eaten anything, right? And um, it it was those little things that I did pick up on, you know, we'd We'd have dessert after dinner and, you know, Liza would be like, oh, I'm not feeling well or I'm already full. And you could just, you could, I could pick, like I was picking up on those restricting behaviours essentially because I had been through them yeah, myself. Exactly. And I, I'd done the exact same thing, right? You already had the education on it so you knew what to yeah. do. Yeah. And then when push came to shove and Liza ended up in hospital, I, um, when I, when I went in there, you know, obviously mum and dad were quite distressed. Like we've both touch wood um, and very grateful that we've both been extremely healthy throughout our lives. And I've never stepped foot in a hospital since I was born. Um, but, you know, mum and dad were obviously quite distressed by the fact that Liz was in there and wasn't sure what was going on. I think there was, you know, at one point, I think you, you know, if you don't mind me saying, I think you got down to like 33 kilos or something, um, which is, you know, absolutely tiny. And um, for me, I I don't know, I just always had this faith and I just always knew that she would be completely fine. Um, and it wasn't the fact that she was trying to get skinny. It was more on the basis of the fact that it was the OCD manifesting and that if she ate something different that day or she didn't work out as much as she did, she didn't have her life together. And that's exactly what I experienced as well. Everything had to be routined. Everything had to be the same each day. And I felt like I had my shit together, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Okay. And as a result of that, we were killing ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's, you know, so many people out there who go through the same thing. And like Liz said, in any way that we can, if we can spread awareness around the topic. But I've, you know, just seen her absolutely grow and flourish from the experience and if anything you know we are just so hyper conscious 
of what is going on in our bodies now and what thoughts are good thoughts and you know when we're having a bad day and it's okay to have a bad day and and that sort of thing so um yeah the experience taught her a lot it taught me a lot as well because it made me realize that if I had kept going with my habits and my behaviors I probably would have ended up in a similar position to wise Mm -hmm. um and for me it's it's still it's still there today there'll be days where I feel like I need to restrict my intake um and up my exercise and I just have to sort of manage that um you know but it's not as loud anymore yeah it was definitely loud a few years ago but not as loud anymore and I just really quickly want to talk on this concept of health a little bit because I feel like a lot of people associate eating disorders with individuals purely just wanting to be skinny Mm. and I just don't think that that is all an eating disorder wraps up to be like Em was saying, there are so many, for a lot of people, there are so many underlying conditions that contribute to the eating disorder. So it can be the control issues, it can be the OCD, it can be the perfectionism. And I think in both of Em and I's cases, we didn't purely just want to be, you know, thin or like the stereotypical beautiful body. We actually wanted to be healthy. And the juxtaposition in that is that we were breaking down our bodies. Mm. So I think it's important that people refrain from making comments about people's bodies, as we all know. Mm -hmm. You know, even calling someone skinny, it it can Mm. sometimes have negative connotations to it. And Mm. I think it's just important that we raise awareness about, you know, even if people are doing exercise, Sometimes it can be damaging. I just think that um, I think it's important that we refrain from casting judgment on people's exercise and eating habits because yeah. uh, as as mine and Em's were when they were unhealthy, people would perceive that as healthy because we were watching what we were eating and we were exercising and that's what society considers to be a healthy lifestyle when yeah. in reality we were completely breaking down our bodies. So yeah. I think it's just important to think about these things a little bit more before you open your mouth and say something to someone about, oh, you're looking so fo- fit, you're looking so good, because um, mm. they really might be doing something behind the scenes, behind the scenes that's damaging to them. So, yeah. and, you know, I guess that's the opposite perspective of fat shaming, but it's just another perspective that we need to kind of consider as well. I was thinking that, as Em was saying, um, you know, there are days that I want to restrict my intake and increase my Mm. exercise because I I hear it constantly I heard it today Mm. um you know someone saying I need to work out a bit more and stop Mm. eating so much and it's it's become such a normal thing to hear Mm. but then there is that flip side of um you know binge eating disorders and you know that where people will say oh it's you know it's disgusting that they can eat so much or Mm -hmm. like you shouldn't be eating so much crap food um yeah you know the opposite can be just as damaging you know not eating enough food is exactly Exactly the same exactly right yeah Yeah. like most conditions and disorders it is on a spectrum where you know people fall under all different kinds of categories but the main you know association is that there is a distorted relationship with food and I think that the more awareness that we can bring to the issue 
the more people will slowly start to understand that it's just not people wanting to be skinny. It's just it's just not what it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's you know I think that's the main thing that's happened in my life besides the sixty million other things. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's really kind of um, developed me as a person and set me on, you know, my life trajectory. Yeah. So I think um, yeah, that's my main one. But yeah. you know, there's still plenty to talk about, and we're already. 40 minutes <laughs> <in>. <laughs> that's okay. I I wanted to ask um, M, how you found your way through that because we didn't really touch on you know obviously with Eliza's there was a kind of a, a breaking point to a degree mm-hmm. um what mm-hmm. what sort of happened with yours for me it's um no credit to myself but it was actually can you hear me okay I think I'm breaking mm-hmm. up a little bit no you're all good okay awesome um for me, it was no credit to myself. I mean, to a certain extent it was, but at the end of year nine, which was when I was probably at my thinnest, we packed up and we moved to Sydney for a year, me and my family for dad's work. And as a result, I was completely thrown. All of my routines and habits went out the window. We started at a brand new school. Lies started in year seven, um, which was, you know, it was it was tough, um, but for her it was a little bit easier because there were a lot of people who were starting new at a new high school in year seven, whereas I had to integrate myself into a cohort that was at the year 10 level of boys and girls. And I'd been so used to an all-girls school my whole life that was completely and utterly sheltered. And then we just really got thrown into the deep end in Sydney, which to be honest, probably started my journey where things started getting a little bit more severe for me. So I, that whole year in Sydney, um, a lot of my friends were, you know, absolutely, you know, living it up at 16. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice. Yeah. Simple way to say it. (laughs) Yeah, living it up. Yeah, I sound like a grandma living it up. Say it how it is, Em. (laughs) God. Um... But I promise you I'm not in my dressing gown while filming this, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's my lie. But for me, I was kind of a bit, I was almost like the mother hen. So I still went out and had fun, but I had friends who were, you know, doing drugs and, you know, like just, just really, really letting loose. And, you know, like credit to them. You've got to do it when you're a teenager. You've got to find your way. You've got to navigate your way through. But for me, I basically held my shit together the whole year and put on this facade that, you know, no one could touch me. I was strong and I think I needed to do that. It was a coping mechanism actually going into a new school because there were girls who just did not accept me. And um, a lot of them were like, oh, she's only going to be here for 12 months. We're not even going to bother, you know, forming friendships with her or anything like that, which I understand, you know, it's you know, you're at that age, it's, it's the maturity, right? So I really had to kind of just just hold my shit together, essentially, and for Lies as well, because Lies was going through a lot that year and a lot of anxiety. But that's when, for me, the panic attacks started happening. So I 
started having panic attacks here and there. And I'll never forget, I sort of had a journal that year and I was writing about them, but I never really paid that much attention to them. They just happened and then they went. And then in year 11, we moved back to Melbourne and I had to reintegrate back into my previous friendship group. And I had a couple of friendships that had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of tension with one particular friendship and a massive falling out occurred. And I was in the middle of a maths test and I just had this wave of anxiety hit me and it was just so uncontrollable. I put my hand up, I had to leave the room and I had a massive panic attack in the bathroom by myself, had absolutely no idea what was going on. I sort of shook it off, went back to what I needed to do. And then that night I went home to mum and I had another one. And that's where it all started. So from there, year 11 was wholeheartedly probably the hardest year of my life. I think I was going through a period there um, where I was having about 10 panic attacks a day. Um, and for me, it would just be completely random. Like most of the time I'd actually have a panic attack, just sitting down on the couch, watching TV. Um, and they just kept happening and happening and happening. And so obviously, you know, it was clear that I needed some help. And as a result of my panic attacks, I just became fearful of everything. Um, I know Lauren, you've spoken very openly about your experience with this before, but it got to the point for me where, getting up in the morning and going to school was like facing, you know, facing like an army <laughs> ahead of you. Like you, you literally just couldn't even fathom the thought of having to do that five days a week. And I'd come home absolutely exhausted and then deal with sleep anxiety at night. So it got to the point for me where I think I had about half an hour of reprieve a day. Um, and the other, you know, 12 hours, 12 to 16 hours that you're awake, I was trying to hold back, just absolutely losing my shit, essentially. And um, for me, I went and got some help. So I went to a psychiatrist and it was probably, <laughs> I can't even describe the appointment to you. The next day I had an exam. And obviously that was a whole other thing that I had to deal with. I had to get special consideration for my exams to sit near an exit because that was a huge thing for me. It manifested to the point where I couldn't get on public transport. If I was sitting in an auditorium full of people, I had to be next to the door. Otherwise I would literally just freak out. Um, and for a bit more further context for everyone, by freaking out, I mean, I would sit there and you would have absolutely no idea that I was having a panic attack. So, <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> For me, I like I my body would be like my hands would be completely sweating, my heart would be racing. One thing and you know, one thing that I'm very lucky enough that I haven't experienced with my panic attacks is hyperventilation. Um, so I wouldn't hyperventilate, but I would get every other every other feeling. So and that wouldn't go until I had removed myself from the situation that I was in. So um it got, it got really, it got really, really tough and it got really bad. And um, I went to see this psychiatrist who I think ended up costing us $600 and he just sat there scribbling notes for half an hour telling us how excited he was to leave the next day for his Europe trip. Oh my God. I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. 
And um, <laughs> mum and I were just sitting there and I said to him, I'm like, I have an exam tomorrow. You need to fix me. Like you need to get rid of this. Yeah. And he's like, well, I mean, I can put you on medication if you want. And I'm just, it, it was in that moment that I, if anything, he made me freak out even more, right? Mm. Um, so after that, I went and saw um, a psychologist who is like friends with our family. My auntie, um, she has been through very, very similar circumstances herself and dealt with a lot of agoraphobia. And um, this particular psychologist really, really helped her through it. So I went and saw her and for a year I was doing CBT, which helped. I was doing lots of breathing exercises. I was on natural remedies. Um, and there were days where I felt like I could conquer the world. And there were days where, you know, I just, I didn't want to leave the house. And I think for me, the hardest part about it all was that I've always been someone to never say no to things. And all of a sudden I found myself saying no to everything. And, and, um, and that was the hardest part for me because I, I didn't, I did not want to say no, but I, I just physically, I, I found it so hard to bring myself to get on a bus or get on a train and go into the city with friends for dinner and that kind of thing. Like that was, you know, like doing a speech in front of 500 people when others wouldn't even give it a second thought. So fast forward at the beginning of year 12, I was sitting in an auditorium again, listening to a speech and I had a massive panic attack had to leave and then I went to my psychologist that night and I said look I just it's gotten to a point for me where I just can't I I just need I need to look down the medication path I just can't I can't do this anymore just CBT and for so long um and this is backtracking a little bit but one thing that really perpetuated my anxiety for me was the fact that I was just googling everything under the sun so (laughs) When I, I used first, to be so mad at you when you would do that. Uh, <laughs> literally go to lies. I'd be like, oh, my God, like, I just read this and I'm freaking out. Like, <laughs> I get so angry. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so I read, you know, I read every horror story under the sun about medication. And for so long for me, it was just completely out of the question. Mm-hmm. Like, you would literally have to force it down my throat. And then my psychologist said to me, she goes, I'm so glad that you finally come around to this. This is something that we should have done 12 months ago, but you had to make the decision to do this. Mm -hmm. And she basically said to me, she goes, Em, based off your family history, what I know about your family, what I know about your biology and your makeup, this is something that you're probably going to be on for the rest of your life. And So I started taking the smallest dose of Zoloft um, and my whole life completely changed. I would literally within three weeks, I was doing things that I would never have been able to do um, at the peak of my anxiety. So literally sitting in the middle of an auditorium on packed trains, um, undertaking exams without a second thought. And for me, like the anxiety was still there, which I actually wanted it to be. I didn't want to be completely numb. I still wanted to feel excited and nervous leading up to things, but it just stopped the panic attacks. So 
I'm still on it today to this day. So I've been on it since 2016. Um, and for me, it just helps my brain balance in the way that it should be. And that doesn't go without saying that I haven't had panic attacks since because trust me, I have. <laughs> um, but for me, it has it has done a world of a world of wonders. And it's just something that I wanted to put out there because I know that there's so many negative stories around medication. And for me, I wanted to kind of just spread some positivity around it. I'm not advocating it for everyone because for a lot of people, it might not work. Um, but for me personally, it really helped me to actually have the space to work through my issues in my head because mm. at my peak of my anxiety, I just, I, I couldn't talk myself down because I was just so like, um, what's the word? I was so hyped up all the time, mm. all the time. It was just that hypersensitivity. Um, and yeah, so I think because um, I know that, you know, we're we're deep into the conversation, but I think another thing for me was um, I had a bit of a relapse a couple of years ago and it really freaked me out at the time because I thought to myself, how am I having a panic attack now? I'm on medication. They that This shouldn't be happening. And it got really bad for about a week and then I managed to stabilise myself again. And the same has happened probably I'd say four or five times since being on medication. There's times for me where it just, I don't know, it's, it's weird. It just, it seems to just stop working or I go through a very stressful period in my life. I've got things coming up and um, sometimes, you know, I might need to take a higher dose to accommodate for what's going on in my life and, um, you know, the different stresses that that involves um, but I've learned to sort of adapt it to myself and what works for me and um, yeah it, it's just really one of those things and I've been very lucky that I haven't dealt with a lot of side effects on this particular medication because I know there's a lot of people who do deal with side effects and for some the side effects are worse than the anxiety and um, it's just all about finding that balance so hmm. yeah yeah I, just, I literally just did an episode on medication and I said exactly yeah. the same as you, that it gives me the space to yeah. to be able to to work things out and to be able to breathe. Yeah. Whereas before it was like just everything's like closing in on you and it's, yeah. it's not, not pleasant. But also I've done the Googling thing yeah. as well. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't do the Googling it. thing, guys. If you take anything away from this podcast, mm-hmm. do not. Google. And on the the medication topic as well, that is one of the main differences between Em and I is that I have actually never really gone on medication. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I actually, no, I haven't. I haven't gone on medication (laughs) before. (laughs) I haven't really, I haven't. Um, But basically I think for me, I think that is because of what happened to me in year nine when I actually got admitted to hospital. In a weird way, I feel as though that was my medication because Mm. up until that point, most of my anxiety, panic attacks, what Em experienced when she was around year 11, so around 17 years old, I was experiencing in primary school. So I had pretty severe like separation anxiety. I had a really random fear of restaurants that was kind of associated with my fear of vomiting. I had uh, a fear of lifts, um, fear of like planes and that kind of thing 
And that was a lot for me to deal with as basically like a, you know, a nine, 10 year old. Um, but I wasn't as aware of what was going on with this anxiety because I wasn't as mature and I didn't understand the depth of it as much. So in a strange way, I was a little bit lucky that I had it uh, like a bit earlier on in my life. Mm. And so I had all of that pretty much up until I would say maybe year seven, because that was the year that, as Em said, we moved to Sydney. So 2014, um, and I was forced to deal with a lot of those fears. Like that was the year that I had to deal with those fears because moving to Sydney was a completely new place. I didn't know anyone. Um, going on school camp, I had to deal with my separation anxiety. Um, we were like staying in hotels where I had to go in lifts. And I remember actually halfway through the year, mum and dad decided to go to Germany. Um, and Em and I were forced to go back to Melbourne to stay with our family because we didn't have anyone to stay with. So I had to get on a plane, go back to Melbourne. In Melbourne, we were having a great time. All of a sudden, our whole family uh, got like a gastro bug and it got spread around the whole family. So that was... Which is amazing for two people with a fear of vomiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a it huge so gastro party. Yeah. Right? <laughs> really gross. Sorry for the TMI, but like, you know, um, we're talking about the psychological side of it here. Um, I think as a... A person who was starting to mature I was that event kind of forced me to deal with the feelings that I had associated with uh, the actual physical event of vomiting mm-hmm. and coming back to Sydney and then going back to Melbourne again to move mm. and actually live here I felt like uh, my whole perspective had been shifted and those small intricate fears that I had as a child were kind of almost just forgotten a little bit because I had these big events where I was able to deal with them and then uh, after that was when my eating disorder started to develop more because I feel like I had more mental space that needed to be occupied a little bit. <laughs> You'd gone on a break and your brain was like, no. Let's <laughs> worry about something. <laughs> Here's the remix. <laughs> Let's put it all together. Yeah. But basically um, after that when I was admitted to hospital and I came out, that was when I think everything fully reset and Mm -hmm. since then Mm -hmm. I've been uh kind of and I think for me as well like um oh no you go no go sorry Liz just broke up for a second there no that's right go for it back online yeah oh okay um I'm sorry where did I I cut off (laughs) no it's all good you're just like kind of jumping in and out a little bit okay um I think one thing that I did want to touch on quickly as well. Um, so in 2019, um, my partner and I, we went on a holiday to America and Canada together. And it was for about a month and a half. And at the time, um, we booked the holiday, I think it was about seven months in advance. And I with this particular holiday, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to, you know, just jump straight into it. But at the same time, I literally had the fear of God in me. I think one of my biggest fears that I have been really struggling to shake for a very long time is my fear of flying. So I don't actually have a fear of flying per se. I have a fear of being confined (laughs) in the plane. (laughs) In the plane for 14 hours. And like not being able maybe, to jump out when you need, right? <laughs> not being able to jump out, yeah. right? So mind you, this trip, and I don't know what I was 
smoking at the time, but we booked 11 flights on this particular trip, including two international flights. And I think it was, I think it was four days before we left, I had probably, probably the biggest panic attack I've ever had. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't calm myself down. And it actually got to the point where I passed out. Um, and I, yeah, fell on the floor and I remember sort of waking up and Lies was just standing over me like, you good, bro? <laughs> 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 it was it was quite traumatic and in that at that time in the middle of that panic attack I was like I can't do this 11 flights I'm going to be halfway across the world I do not want to ruin this experience for Carl like I want him to go and have the most amazing time ever and I don't want him to be held back because of my anxiety and as a result of that it was making me more anxious right mm. so self-perpetuation it's just exactly you know. exactly um, and then I managed to just bite the bullet. I had, you know, some medication with me on the plane if I needed to take it. I didn't end up taking it, but that was my get out of jail card, right? Because I couldn't get off the plane. I had to have something there to relieve me if I started freaking out. Um, and 11 flights later, we had a really successful, beautiful holiday the most amazing time we've ever had. And don't get me wrong, there were times where I was very anxious when we were away, um, but you just, you work through it. And, you know, credit to my medication as well, because if I hadn't have been on meds, I, to be completely honest with you, I, I don't think I would have been able to, to, I probably would have been able to do it, but it would have been the most stressful month mm. <laughs> of my life. Mm. Um, but I think the moral of the story for me, and this is something that I I really wanted to know, when I was at the peak of my anxiety, I was looking out there for stories of people who had gotten through it and who had managed to do everything that they still wanted to do, even though they had a disorder. And I guess that's where I come in now, because for me, I didn't think an overseas trip with 11 flights was ever possible you know, looking back five years ago, I would have said absolutely no. And since then as well, I have also, and I don't know why, but I... Um, thrown yourself out of a plane? I, I <laughs> thrown myself, <laughs> myself out of a plane. <laughs> I, I saw that on your Instagram and I was like, this bitch is crazy. Let's get her on the show. <laughs> Mind you, I, um, I actually, you know what the funny thing is, is that the fact that I hate being in planes so much, I was more than happy to jump out. <laughs> <laughs> and oh my goodness, it was the most amazing. And mind you, we went up in this crappy little two propeller, like it was going to fall apart at any minute. And when it got to the time to jump out, I was like, open that door and just let me fly. Like, <laughs> please. Um, but that's, that's, something as well I think for me and lies what we've always found is that the most anxiety that we ever have is leading up to the event yes and then actually when it actually comes down to it we are completely calm just put your head down and just I've never been able to understand it but where we always work ourselves up so much leading up to something and I still do it to this day you know even with work and things going on in my personal life or going on holidays, I get super nervous. And then when it actually comes down to it, I'm kind of like, 
man, I, why? Why did I stress myself out that much? This is so completely fine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's just a little something, you know. You, you can still go and do these crazy things that you might thought that would have never been possible just because you've been diagnosed with a mental illness. Like, it's it doesn't hold you back. It just it just adds to who you are and, and to your personality. Mm. And, and, you know, like I've said to so many people and like Lies has said, I wouldn't trade it for the world ever because I am so aware of who I am as a person. Now I make such an effort to enjoy every day and be present mm. and be in the moment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's really opened my eyes to a whole different way of, of life and living. Mm-hmm. I um I'm I'm really glad that you said all of that because I I was thinking like even when I was looking at your Instagram before we spoke um Mm -hmm. looking at the things that you've done and it's funny because I can come from two perspectives in my head where one part of me is like how the hell is this chick doing this stuff but then I, I recently had an occasion where somebody commented on quite a few times actually on various social media accounts of mine telling me that I don't have agoraphobia. And they oh, were yes. like, <laughs> yeah, they were yeah. like, if you can travel to New Zealand, you don't have agoraphobia. And I was partly like, well, yes, I've worked very hard to overcome it. But then the other part of me was like, it's so easy to look at someone's situation and say, you don't have shit as bad as I do because mm-hmm. – if you did, you wouldn't be able to do those things. But the reality is you actually can do them. And like you said, it's just the anticipatory anxiety is Mm -hmm. the worst. But the actual event pales in comparison to to that anxiety. And so, you know, people say, how did you manage to travel and and do all that stuff? And I, I hear you saying that you were so anxious beforehand and I can totally relate to that but I can understand how you then went and did it as well. Yeah. And that's the thing, Lauren, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. No one, and look, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm very open about the fact that my Instagram, when I look at it, for example, it doesn't make any reference to my mental illness. And I haven't been very open about what I've experienced other than actually on this podcast today for a few reasons and I think it's still because I'm I'm working through the whole perfectionist thing mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it's actually it has been hard for me like don't get me wrong I will tell any person out there who asks me I'm very open about the fact that I'm on medication that I've been diagnosed with OCD anxiety and panic disorder and you know all of the above but when it comes to social media um, no one saw me passing out three nights before I went away to America. No one saw me nearly messaging my partner saying, I don't know if I can do yeah, this. Call it off. We're not going. <laughs> no one no one saw the the manic packing or the stress to-do lists or the the first Valium pill that I ever had to take the night that we landed in Vancouver because I just literally couldn't go to sleep because and mind you, I hadn't slept for 48 hours because of the flight no one saw that right and it's very easy for people like like you said people go to you well you don't have agoraphobia because you've done all those things and been able to you know put yourself out there but but I do I do have it and you can't you can't turn around and say that you know 
you're worth less just because you're doing more than what someone else can't, mm. right? So it's just that you um, manage that, to work through it in in a way. Yeah, I don't know if working through it is. But then it's also, but it's also very okay. And I just want to put this out there because I don't want to make the wrong impression. It is also very okay if you can't work through it. Mm. If there's a day where you're not feeling strong yeah. mm. and you go, actually, you know what? Today I can't. I can't do it. Mm. And and that is okay. You don't have to work through things all the time, but. I think what you've managed, Em, is to simultaneously experience those emotions but also complete the tasks you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I yeah, don't think exactly. it's not like you've, um, you know, pushed the emotions yeah. to the side and not dealt with them. You've done that. Yeah. And you've been able to do what you want to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think um, even when, for example, even when I did, when I was at the peak of my anxiety, I know I've referred to this before that I – was saying no to a lot of things I actually I almost just ended up throwing myself into everything because I have my fear of FOMO is so much greater (laughs) than than my fear (laughs) than my fear of missing out right so I would put myself through hell I would just sit at events and I'd have panic attack after panic attack and then I'd go home completely exhausted but I felt accomplished because I managed to just push myself through it. And, you know, even though it was like I, it was not enjoyable by any means, I still did it. Yeah. And to me, um, the greatest failure for me was 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 saying no. And I really, I really struggled with that. I really struggled with like as much as I was scared of it, I, I just had to do it. There was think- there was just something. Um, Em and I are the exact same in this aspect and I think we both have this really conflicting fear of our anxiety, right? So I think Mm. we have the anxiety around the specific event situation, what is it like occurring that holds us back from wanting to do that. But at the same time, we both have this uh, fear of our fear holding us back from doing that. So both Mm. of those two things butt heads and eventually – we have to decide which fear is greater, the fear that we can't do it or the fear that we have to do it. And mm. I think most of the time, Em and I, I don't know how, but we end up deciding that we just need to do it. Besides mm. the fear, we just have to do it. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but I think... It, it does um, to me. It gets a bit addictive, doesn't it, to, it does. to it do does. these things that scare the shit out of you. <laughs> it's almost like... Like jumping out of a plane yeah. when you're scared of flying. No, I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah and that's okay that's that's something that I think I need to um explore a bit more because I I really do get that that fear of saying no but then Mm -hmm. also like I've had people say to me but when do you say no like there has to be times when you respect that you're tired or that you're Um, Mm. you know whatever Mm. whatever it may be you need to sometimes you can't always be pushing yourself Mm. and I think for me that needs some more exploration because having had agoraphobia I know that Mm. it's a slippery slope to once Mm. I start saying no it's a very quick um turnaround to saying no to everything yeah yeah Yeah. so I'm still trying to find the healthy balance Mm. (laughs) yeah definitely and it's it's different it's so different for everyone I think the environment that me and my sister grew up we were very fortunate that you know we've had a very you know stable 
um, upbringing and both very loving and caring, supportive parents. Mm -hmm. But um, when I look at my dad, for example, I think this probably is where, you know, a bit of (laughs) a bit of our anxiety comes through because dad has always been the type of person that will push himself into the ground until he's just like half dead. Right. So complete, like just, you know, just really, really just hardworking. Um, but at the same time, it's not a good thing. And I think that's where, you know, me and my sister get it from. Um, we, we have this fear that, you know, we, we don't really listen to ourselves when we're tired. Like if I'm tired and I can't be bothered and someone says, do you want to go and do this? I'll drop everything at a hat to go and do that Hmm. because I just, it's almost like I, um, and this is where my anxiety plays in a little bit as well. But I have a, I have a lot of fear around. I have a bit of um, death anxiety. So for me, it's almost like I have this need to kind of live every day like it's my last, which isn't a great quality, right? It's it's not great. And trust me, you ask my partner, like he just wants to come home and chill out, and I want to go and build a house, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's, it's something that I'm working on at the moment as well. It, it's learning that actually listening to myself when I'm tired and it's okay to rest and it's you don't have to be going out and going exploring or going on adventures 24-7, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. It's a tricky balance. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> it's a learning curve. It is. Um, just before I forget, I know we're, you know, nearing time. There's probably just one more thing that I wanted to make mention of, and it's something that stuck with me um, for such a long time. I went to a doctor's appointment a couple of years ago now to get my renewal for my Zoloft subscription because every six months you have to go and get it renewed. And at the time, the doctor who was working there, you know, was just asking me questions about what I'm doing and I'd finished school at the time and I told him that I was doing a degree in psychology and he turned around and said to me how are you going to help other people if you can't help yourself and and I'm the type of person massive massive people pleaser um I just laughed it off Mm. and at Time, I should have sucker punched this guy square in the face. <laughs> yeah, and said, like, like, you've never had a problem in your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's something that I just wanted to put out there because for me it was such a driving fuel that I, you know, even though I don't have a career within the psychology space, I'm actually working um, within HR at the moment, which still has a lot of, you know, putting people at the front focus and, you know, helping people with their well-being in the workplace and all that kind of thing. And I just wanted to put it out there because um, there's there's going to be or there's going to come a time where people are going to make these comments to you and say to you, you know, how are you going to do that if you can't help yourself, essentially? And for me, the answer to that is, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to try. Just or I'm going to try, I'm going to try, right? And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And I'm so grateful that he said that to me because I I went back to the car and I started crying and I called mum and I said, mum, like, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Have I made the right choice here? Should I be studying psychology? Mm. And, you know, there's 
probably millions of people out there. There's, you know, even my psychologist was open to me about being on antidepressants herself, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I think that's just, you know. I think in, in terms of addressing psychology, I feel as though the experiences that we've had is more enriching than anything else. Because when you're talking to someone with anxiety, if you're coming from a perspective where you've never experienced an anxious thought in your life, it is extremely hard to help that person. You can't relate to them. They can't relate to you. There is a massive gap between the two. And I think having the experience that both Em and I have had, it's helped us in so many different relationships within our lives to help other people. And I know for me, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for Em, I don't relate to anyone else in this world more than I do to Em because she knows exactly what I'm thinking without me saying it. It scares me. I'm not going to lie. And I think she has treated me more than any other psychologist will ever treat me. So Ditto. Yeah. You know. Lies like, <laughs> is, is my personal shrink. I know. But you haven't paid me yet, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just I want to make a point of the fact that um you don't yeah, it there is no stigma that needs to be held against people with uh psychological issues because there's more than you think who have these issues and probably a just don't want to admit it or haven't been diagnosed or don't feel okay talking about them but it really does make it so much easier to relate to people and help them with their own issues if you've been through something similar yeah i i agree and i think you may not be able to help some people Mm. but you may be able to help others deeply and it's everyone is different and you guys have dealt with psychologists before both of you Mm -hmm. and I'm the same some I've meshed Mm -hmm. with and some I haven't and their Mm -hmm. personal history with their mental health has nothing to do with that it's more Mm -hmm. just how we relate as people exactly yeah 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 I think your lived experience is more powerful than any degree any qualification any sort of you know it's it's all about that authentic human experience right right? and we lose sight of that so much um it makes me think of the food pyramid like just that black (laughs) and white thing you know (laughs) it takes takes the human away from it it takes the soul it takes you know the spirituality and i'm not going to get into my white girl crystal manifestation talk because at least we don't have time for that. Don't, we'll be here for another hour and it'll just be her talking. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's really important as well is that just do do what, you know, feels true to yourself and help people in any way that you can. And if someone tells you no, you're not talking to the right person. Yeah, fuck them off. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Exactly. On that note, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I want to ask both of you um, because I ask everyone this question: mm-hmm. If you had one piece of advice to give to somebody in their darkest days, um, even yourself in your darkest days, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, that's a big one. Um... <laughs> yeah, sorry to leave <laughs> that one on you. <laughs> no, it's a great question. I just think there's so many different things. There's so many different things. But you go in. This it's honestly the most simplest 
most simplest thing. But for me, things will get better. And I wish I could go back to myself, for example, in year 11, where I literally could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. If I was able to time travel back then and go, hey, dude, look at all the stuff that you've achieved in the past six years, you still have anxiety. Don't get me wrong. You still have anxiety. You still have panic attacks. And there are days where things are really shit, (laughs) but things get better. Mm. And it's that I think the biggest thing for me as well is that I've stopped thinking about anxiety as a disorder or a a disease because I don't think we're labeling it correctly in that sense I look at it as a roller coaster ride and I look at it as there are days where I'm on top of the world and I could literally do anything I set my mind to and then there's those dips where I am messaging (laughs) (laughs) or I pass out or you know just like the the casual panic attack like it's fine um but I think that's, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me is things will get better and that you, you're you more stronger than you think and that if you can tune into that inner strength in yourself, you'll you'll be able to push through anything. Love I that. agree. I agree with that, Em. And mine, I mm-hmm. guess, is um in a similar vein, but I think the number one thing that has always helped me the most whenever I've been uh, at my worst is the concept of you can go as far as you want to go. So I feel like really frequently um, mental health issues are addressed as a separate component to someone's person. But I think Mm. if you really just kind of try to accept and embrace the fact that mental health is a part of who you are, It's part of your personality and how you express yourself, how you think, then you can truly understand that your limits and your drive and your determination, you can express them to the level that you want to express them and that will only take you Mm. as far as you are comfortable to go. So really I Mm. just, as much external help as you can get and I think it's extremely important to share and talk and all of that ultimately it's up to you to do what you want to do. Mm. And I think that's what's all that thought has always helped me because when it's come down to crunch time and I've had to do something that's made me really anxious, I'm like, it's just me now. I have to do this. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like your, your own best friend, your own cheerleader. Exactly. We, we, we rarely do that, do we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> And I think as well, just very quickly, I think one thing that used to make me incredibly anxious was all of the talk around how, um, not corrupt, but what's the word? How, I can't think of the word. My mind's gone. What are you trying to talk? <laughs> in the afternoon. Essentially how outdated, that's the word I'm looking for, how outdated the mental health system is mm. in Australia. So For me, yes, there are, and look, you know, it's very noticeable. There are a lot of issues with it. But at the time, when I really needed help, all I wanted to know was that I could get help and that there is help out there. And I promise you, try not to listen too much about the negatives behind what is out there because, look, 
in reality, there are some, but there are also people out there, practitioners, psychologists, services that will absolutely help you to the nth degree. And I wouldn't be where I am today without them. So it's it's like that roller coaster ride again and tuning into what Lauren said, you know, there'll be times where you do click with someone and then there'll be times where you end up at a psychiatrist's office and you spend half an hour talking about their Europe trip while you're having a panic attack in their <laughs> stinky old leather chair, right? So <laughs> just to paint a picture for you. But um, there, there is help out there. And, you know, my biggest other piece of advice is just just go and and get help as soon as you feel like you're ready to um, because it will. It will take you, you know, it will take you to a new place and you'll be able to, you know, give yourself that space to really work through those challenges that you're experiencing. Mm. Yeah, always reach out. Always reach out. Yeah. yeah. That's lovely. I want to thank you <laughs> both for being so open um, and honest because I think that's, the best thing that we can do is just to share and be transparent and you've both really done that um maybe too much no i'm a big fan of tmi so that's all good yeah great same (laughs) um if people would like to reach out to you um where is the best place for them to contact both of you or either of you Feel free to just message me through my Instagram. So um, I believe I'm on private, but I think you can still message me. I think, yeah, you know, that's you grandma talking again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my Instagram is m.belville. Um, so oh, I'll link it in the show notes. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah link it in the that Fantastic. And mine is, you know, very similar, but just Eliza underscore Belville because, you know, <laughs> Yeah. basically got the same switch, person so you gotta switch things up yeah. a little bit right <laughs> be a little bit different <laughs> yeah okay all right awesome so that will be linked in the show description if you want to reach out to eliza or m um but yeah thank you both so much for being no, thank on you the show. for having us thank you so much thank you lauren Thank you for listening to the Us Anxious Folk podcast, the podcast for the chronically overwhelmed, perpetually panicked, anxious folk in all of us. If you would like to find more about me, you can find me on YouTube at Lauren Rose or on Instagram at Lauren R underscore Rose.